Friends, thus far in our Holy Shifts sermons, um, we've seen a lot of shifts just within the actual biblical texts. So a sense of fairness that we deserve moves us to a sense of generosity. A sense of how we might grasp onto things moves us and shifts us to mercy. This week, I'm inviting us to think about the shift that happens within us as well. How we might move from seeing these biblical narratives and stories, poems and promises, how they might move from black and white to color. So let us pray as we hear scripture read and proclaimed. Indeed, we walk by faith, Lord, and yet we always need help to see the way. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, be in this place. For if you are not, then nothing else matters. And if you are, then nothing else matters. And let the people of God say, Amen. Hear now a word from the Lord, John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women What do you say? They said this to test him so they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, They went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You all know every once in a while I like to do a good old-fashioned three-point sermon. So welcome to your three-point sermon. Point one, caught in the act. First of all, this story brings some real questions to mind. One of them being, what exactly were the scribes and Pharisees doing to catch this woman in the act of something that is usually quite private and hidden? Did they lay some sort of trap for her? Did they promise her a weekend alone with total control over the TV and Uber Eats delivering El Paso? Not that that would tempt me to adultery, it just would be rather tempting. (laughs) Was she a pawn? 
Because she seems like a means to an end based on verse 6. They said all this to test Jesus so that they might bring a charge against him. There's more to that, so we're going to come back to it later. But another burning question is also very obvious. Where is the man who would also have been in the very act? Why was he not brought to the temple with her? The religious leaders claim the law of Moses says they are to stone her, but Deuteronomy says if a man is caught lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, both the man and the woman he lay with. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Team purge evil. I mean, can you imagine that church league basketball team? Also in the law of Moses, Leviticus says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. The law, we could say, is pretty black and white as to the responsibility of both partners who are caught in the act. Which really makes me feel quite sorry for this woman. She's caught between a rock and a hard place, and the plan seems to put Jesus there too. But there's something interesting, this woman's sin. No one in the story offers any sort of defense. Not Jesus, not even Our Lady of the Night. No one offers an explanation or a counter-narrative. Her sin, the Pharisees feel, is strong enough that it demands punitive action. But is this sin... Is her sin worse than any other sin? I mean, we are all usually really good about ranking sin. We know that stealing our neighbor's ox is not the same as murdering our neighbor. Saying the Lord's name is not the same as warning your brother's brand new oxen cart. And yet, somewhere along the way, Of all the sins, the church has decided that sins of sexual nature are among the worst, and women are usually to blame. Now, I do think, like most of us, that it's true. Those sins can cut deeper, and it may make her sin seem black and white, but what if things got more colorful? What if the situation was different? What if she had been brought before Jesus because she was an immigrant with no papers? What if she had been found embezzling money from the company? Would our sympathies still lie with her or would they shift to the Pharisees and the scribes or to Jesus? You know, the fact that Jesus does not even bring up her sin should tell us something. Namely, that he doesn't seem too concerned with ranking sin. 
And what might seem black and white is likely way more nuanced because, well, people, right? She may have been set up. She may have been caught in the act. But whatever the situation is and wherever her mysterious partner might be, Jesus does not rank her sin against any other or judge her harshly because of it. Which leads to my next point. Point two, come to Jesus meeting. I don't know if you're following Landon Bryant on Instagram or on the TikTok, but you need to be, okay? His videos and reels are called Landon Talks, and they're hilariously accurate explanations of very Southern things. He starts each video inviting discussion about Southern tendencies or phrases, topics, or food, such as fallen out, tomato sandwiches, Mike could, Sunday dinner versus Sunday lunch, and caftans. <laughs> Those of you who do follow Landon Talks may not have known this, but Landon even has a talk on this very chapter in the Gospel of John. Now our passage begins telling us that Jesus is at the temple to teach. And while he's there, the scribes and the Pharisees do a very, very southern thing. They drag this woman from her act, bring her to the temple, and they arrange what I'm willing to call the original come-to-Jesus moment. Let's hear what Landon has to say about come-to-Jesus moments. Let's discuss a come-to-Jesus meeting because we've got to explain exactly what that is. Come to Jesus means we're coming to put it all out there, let ourselves confess, repent, and turn from our wicked ways. The come to Jesus meeting is an intense, an intense halting of behavior. We've moved from warnings into now we're having the discussion. We're going to talk about it. It's time to discuss it. And you're going to listen. You do not want to be the recipient of a come to Jesus meeting because it is you coming and almost meeting Jesus. And you would like to stay here on earth after this meeting. Now, my mom was very good at come to Jesus meetings. She's real quick. And pretty much every lady I grew up around down here can hold a real quick come to Jesus meeting without hesitation. So you just need to be aware. Act right. But you don't have to worry about come to Jesus meetings just popping up out of nowhere. Come to Jesus meeting is a progression of warning, warning, warning. Come to Jesus meeting. Next is on punishment. Sometimes the punishment is doled out in the come to Jesus meeting. But in my experience, the, the meeting itself is a punishment. And this moment determines what happens next. It determines if you are permanently on punishment or if this talking to is enough. Do you hold Come to Jesus meetings? Were you the recipient of Come to Jesus meetings? Let's discuss it. I love that. You're coming to the meeting and you're about to meet Jesus, but you want to stay here on earth after that. Yes, yes we do. And so does our woman. Here's the thing. I doubt the adulterous woman had multiple, let alone any, warnings But these leaders plan that come-to-Jesus meeting, wanting Jesus to dole out the punishment and then trap himself. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give her 
punishment. He doesn't even give her a stern talking to, which is surprising because here in this moment is where the punishment should come. She was, remember, not denying anything about being caught in the act. For those in charge, this come to Jesus moment had all the marks of a good ending. You could, as Southerners say, kill two birds with one stone, a fast and loose woman and a fast and loose rabbi. But in a situation that seems so straightforward, a woman caught in the act who should get punishment, Jesus takes this meeting to a whole new level. Because Jesus responds with, let anyone who's without sin cast the first stone. And instead of punishment for the woman caught in the act, and instead of vindication for these backstabbing, no good, power-hungry, self-righteous, goody-two-shoe religious leaders, instead of punishment and entrapment, Jesus offers new life, which shifts everything from black and white into color. In this come-to-Jesus meeting, Jesus' verdict offers the scribes and Pharisees a space to re-examine their lives in his interpretation of the law, and the woman is invited into that same verdict. All at once, all together in this meeting, they are given the chance to look at their hearts, to look at their lives, and as Landon says, confess, repent, and turn from wicked ways. Mercy and grace are given right alongside the promise that no one stands in a place of condemnation. So all of them, sinners and religious leaders, are invited to go and sin no more. And speaking of no sinning, I want to come back to the verse that said, they said this to Jesus to test him, so they might have some charge to bring against him. Because that moves us to point three, a real holy shift. I buy in to the old trope less and less that the scribes and Pharisees are villains and Jesus is the hero. The model isn't particularly helpful and perhaps not even accurate. It is true that Jesus and how he brings God's kingdom into this life is and was a challenge for their religious systems. But let's be clear. I promise you that if Jesus and how he brings God's kingdom into this life, if it was a challenge then... It remains a challenge to our religious system even now. And we don't see ourselves as villains thwarting God's inbreaking, so we shouldn't paint the scribes and Pharisees that way either. The layers of villainy in this text run deep. Not only does the narrator lead us to believe that the scribes and Pharisees are out to test and trap Jesus, they also appear heartless and downright cruel, willing to use a woman's life as a throwaway to attain their goal. It's icky and likely short-sighted. If we didn't have that verse, verse 6, they said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Could it be assumed that we'd interpret the passage completely differently? 
Because here's a news flash. This story isn't even original to John's gospel, which means it is not out of the realm of possibility to think that there are additions and edits within this text. In other gospels, the Pharisees, out of compassion, warn Jesus ahead of time that Herod is looking for him. In the book of Acts, a Pharisee teacher rescues Peter and John from death. There is evidence that Pharisees were reluctant to use capital punishment at all. And Josephus, who is a well-known first-century Jewish historian, says that Pharisees are naturally lenient in matters of punishment. In the Jewish life, when a difficult situation or a question came up, it was common for teachers and leaders to have what's called a responsum. A responsum was a place where questions and solutions could be, um, I can't believe I'm going to use this, fleshed out. (laughs) Difficult questions and situations could be fleshed out so that they would become a foundation for establishing a norm or a new custom that might go into the law. So there is a possibility that the scribes and the Pharisees brought this woman before Jesus. Is it possible because they did not want to stone her, but wanted help to figure it out? They knew, of course, what the law required. But is there a chance that they didn't ever want to execute her at all? Maybe they were looking for some sort of loophole in the Torah, and they heard about this new young teacher with innovative ideas and a popular following who just happened to be teaching at the temple that day and thought maybe he could give us a fresh insight. And so they come to Jesus for a responsum. As Jesus begins writing on the ground and gives his famous lies about line about sin and throwing stones, what if the Pharisees and scribes agreed with him and they walk away one by one contemplating this new way of looking at a very old problem? Holy shift. You mean that instead of fostering an us versus them attitude, how religious leaders are always bad but Christians are obviously always good, you mean this could be about Pharisees and scribes wanting Jesus' insight? They may have wanted his ruling so that the black and white of the law could be more deeper and richly colorful. Friends, all of this, Jesus' lack of condemnation and judgment for sin, this new life that Jesus gives both the religious leaders and the woman caught in the act, the possibility that these leaders wanted Jesus' help to influence their reading of the law, all of those options are a holy shift. Because these stories and rules, these narratives and the promises of Scripture, they're just black and white. They're just black ink on a white page. But when we come together as God's community, 
in this sacred work of understanding and interpreting and applying what's in those black and white pages, well, it all comes together. Trusting that the Spirit will work, using our own experience and the resources and tools we have. Well, when we all do that, it seems like the black and white story on a page makes a shift to full-on color. Thanks be to God.